let's open, will we, to Isaiah 45. Isaiah chapter 45, as we each week here um, go through four to five chapters a Sunday, the idea is that you guys read with us a chapter for each day of the week. And then on the weekends, you read it all at once, and you come on Sunday, and we teach through it. So we're doing Isaiah 45 to 48 tonight. 45 through 48. Let's pray. As we just sang, Father, we ask that you would flood this room with your spirit in such a way that you gather us around your Son to hear him talk to our heart and to shape us into a community that faithfully and righteously resembles your people. And I pray that as we do that, that you would also through this body continue your work of assembling all nations around yourself. So I pray that you would call us, you would equip us, you would change our minds, that they be not conformed anymore to the thinking of this world, but transformed into a biblical worldview, seeking to glorify and exalt your name in a life lived holistically for truth, goodness, and beauty. In your son's name we pray, amen. Jacob went on a hunting trip and entered into the woods, a rifle in his hand and hostility in his heart. And alongside him was his hunting dog, Billy. And as they entered the woods, he was muttering curses against his neighbor. And he was lost in thought as he was going through the woods back behind his house on his property And he was talking to his dog, Billy, about how much he didn't like his neighbor. That darn neighbor, Billy, you don't understand how much he bothers me. Shifts the rifle to the other arm. You know, just the other day, and he seems to do this all the time, I see him strutting through my property on his way to his house, dragging some venison or other game behind him, And when I come out on the porch to look at him and tell him that he's hunting on my property, before I can even say a word, he looks up at me and smirks with this insolent smile. And not a word is passed as he moves on. I can't stand that guy. He does this almost every week, Billy. Billy just pants as they keep on moving their way through the woods. Now, it happened some time into the woods that Jacob and his dog, Billy, come across a large boulder. And the path winds around the boulder. And Billy's hair suddenly stands on end, and he begins to growl. That, that, that thing that hunting dogs get when they know that there's something good coming up ahead. Get that rifle loaded. But Jacob is so lost in his reverie 
about how much he doesn't like his neighbor and about what will I do if I find him on my hunting grounds again? Will I shoot him in the eye? Will I shoot him in the foot? And he was just lost in this reverie about his neighbor that he didn't even notice Billy's hair standing on end and growling ferociously that there was game up ahead. In fact, as they got nearer this boulder coming up ahead, Billy stops altogether and begins to bark viciously. This is no something's up ahead, get the rifle ready bark. This is something's wrong kind of a bark. And Jacob is still so lost in his reverie, he doesn't even seem to notice. And there, as he rounds the corner around the boulder, he is awakened out of his reverie to be face to face with a mama bear. Not just any mama bear, but a grizzly bear. A grizzly bear whose hair of its own is standing on end and whose mouth of its own is growling and bearing white, ferocious fangs and red, glaring eyes. And mama bear stands up on its two hind legs. And Jacob is horrified. He can't even move. Thankfully, his dog Billy comes to the rescue and starts running up to the bear. But before he can even get, before Jacob can even get the gun off his shoulder and fire it at this grizzly, the grizzly takes one swipe at the gun and knocks it 20 yards away, takes another swipe at the dog Billy, and throws him against the tree where he's unconscious. And now before he, before he can even blink an eyelash, Jacob is face to face with this grizzly bear with nothing but his bare hands and her bare claws. And he does the wise thing at this point. He turns to run as fast as he can. And as he turns, as the luck would have it, his foot gets caught in an emerged tree root. And he flies face forward into the ground. And he can't even scramble back up to his feet before Mama Grizzly is coming his way. And he can now feel her right above him, hot breath beating down upon the back of his neck. He can even feel the paw beginning to press against his chest. And he can hear the growl. He can feel drool dripping down. And Mama Grizzly gets up on her hind legs and is ready to pounce upon Jacob to finish him off once and for all. Well, in Isaiah 45... That story introduced to you conflict. Conflict is a central part of all storytelling. Stories are made to move up to a moment of tension and conflict. And a good story takes you from conflict and pushes through to resolution, where everything gets settled and resolved. Israel, like you and I tonight, they are presently in our book of Isaiah, left at a cliffhanger. What's going to happen? And the last thing they know is they're in the middle of conflict, and everything is suspended right there. There is, real brief, I'm going to be a little technical here, just for a little second, bear with this. There's debate as to when our chapters are written. Some would say about, this is the original Isaiah. He's writing, oh, a good 150 years, a little less than that, before the exile, before Babylon takes Israel and takes them away. 
Others would say that this is a different, a disciple of Isaiah who's writing much later while they're in the exile itself. Um, different schools of thought. Whatever the case is, this is the point. Whether Isaiah is talking way before the exile or he's talking in the exile itself, the point is he's talking to exiles, whether they're present or soon to be exiles. Okay, So they are people who've been removed from their homeland. They're in the middle of conflict. A mighty empire called the Babylonians had come in and they'd smashed the city, destroyed the temple, got rid of their king, and now deported much of the population all the way over to Babylon, modern-day Iraq. And you can imagine the kind of conflict that they're in. And their whole world seems to stop. The promises that God had made for them, that they would never cease to be a kingdom, that they're destined to change the world. All of these come to a halt. The grizzly is right on top of them. And they're left in the cliffhanger, in the suspense of this conflict going, how great is God anyway? Is God really as great as we had thought he was? Is he really as great as the prophets had told us, as Moses had explained? Because here they are, worshipers of Yahweh, who had watched Yahweh's temple get defeated by an army who flew the flag of a different god, Marduk. And literally the way the culture thought back then was that it was the God who protected your nation and its temple. And it was from the temple that the God made war. And so here comes Marduk through the Babylonian armies and he conquers Yahweh's temple. What the Jew is literally thinking, what the Babylonians are telling them to think, is that our God Marduk is greater than your God Yahweh. Look at the temple lying in ruins. Look at your city devastated. Look at your people handcuffed being moved to Marduk's land. It's pretty obvious, is it not, that Yahweh is not as great as you think he is. And so there is a nation of exiles in doubt. They're unsure. Is God really as great as we always think? thought he was maybe babylon is greater than yahweh maybe it's time that we shift ourselves into their culture see the world the way they do worship their gods this is the situation we find israel in this is the audience and the emotion that Isaiah writes to. So there's terrible doubt. There's terrible conflict. They're in the middle of a cliffhanger. And it needs to be resolved. We all live in a story. This is what philosophers have been saying for some years. Is that your worldview is a story that describes the way the world works. Now, most of us don't realize this until we reach conflict. It's the minute, the minute we find ourselves in conflict that we suddenly begin searching for resolution. We begin to understand that this can't be the way things end. Things have to look up. Things have to become better. And so the minute we find ourselves in conflict like Israel does, we realize that there's a need for resolution. There's a need for things to finish off rightly. Rightly. 
And this is where the people are. They're looking for resolve. This conflict has to, it just has to end differently. So what Isaiah does is he writes to them as a poet. Now, it was some time ago, I think I last taught Isaiah, the beginning chapters of Isaiah. You guys might remember that. Um, I, I talked about how the whole entire book of Isaiah is structured like a symphony. That there are three parts to the book of Isaiah. It begins in chapters 1 through 39 with the, the drums and the brass blaring obnoxiously because it starts off with judgment and be ye warned all you nations and Israel judgment is coming and Isaiah is going off as a prophet warning them against destruction that's coming upon them. Then the symphony goes to movement number two in chapter 40 through 55. And there the voice of Isaiah changes dramatically. He's no longer a prophet declaring warning that judgment's coming He's now a poet describing the beauty of God's comfort that's going to come upon a troubled people who have been judged. So the symphony at that part moves into a nice rhythm of dancing strings, very airy, very light, very comfort, comfort my people. That's how chapter 40 starts, right? And then when you get to chapter 56, the third and final movement of the symphony takes you to the end of the book. And so the prophet who's warning against judgment and the poet who's giving comfort becomes the preacher who's preaching hope. And he's telling them that you're destined for great things. And it's this great climax and crescendo that Isaiah ends with. And it ends with the new heavens and new earth, which John picks up in Revelation. So that's where all Isaiah's going. It's like this huge symphony. And there's themes that are repeated. There's lyrics and melodies that kind of repeat and oscillate throughout the book, connecting the three movements together. And it's this great musical com composition that Isaiah is doing. And so as we come here, as we're in chapter 45, what we're at is the part of the symphony where there's comfort being gently distilled through the strings to the people in conflict. That the prophet is no longer sh just shamming, what am I trying to say? Cramming, shoving and cramming, shramming truth into, <laughs> he's no longer doing that, uh, putting truth into the people. Like, you guys got to get it right. You guys got to see Yahweh correctly. You guys, your social injustice is horrible. Move, you know, he was just going at it, right? We've been seeing that for weeks. Now, now it's a different tone. But the poet, who's not going to cram truth down somebody's throat, poets go about things very differently. Plato talked about the complete person that he was made up of three parts. And Isaiah seems to have the same idea going on. The three parts of a whole person are truth. It's true. Uh, truth, goodness, and beauty. Truth, goodness, and beauty. Now, as a church, we are so big on truth. We love truth. We declare truth. Like Isaiah the prophet. It's this is true. That's false. Go this way. Don't go that way. And we love what is good. We're all about what is good. Abstain from what is evil. We're building a kingdom of good stuff. And we're trying to do good deeds. And the prophet too is calling the people into being more fair to the poor. Don't oppress the widows and be good. 
But now the poet comes in, and his tone isn't what's true, what's good. That's been hammered. There's now a people completely losing their faith. They're, they're totally in doubt. They don't even know what's going on anymore. They don't know their right from their left. They don't know who to believe. They don't know what is, I mean, they've heard truth, but they don't know if they should buy that truth or Babylon's truth. They don't need a prophet or a preacher yelling at them about truth and be good. They need a poet who's going to tell them what's beautiful, who's going to show God to them, not in a rational, reasoned way, well, you take this and that, and therefore God is true. They're in conflict. They're in doubt. They need a poet who's going to come and show them God in a beautiful way. Show the revelation of God. And the way that Isaiah does this here as a poet is rather than just saying everything as black and white, black and white, you guys need to get here. The number four is the sum, so get to four. He's coming at it in a poetic way. He, he's telling them story. He's telling them two plus two. And prodding them to on their own realize four is the sum. That's where we need to go. This is a much gentler way. This is a much more beautiful, artistic way that he's bringing up people lost in doubt and confusion and conflict and exile and prodding them along with beauty. You know it's true and good. You just need to see that it's beautiful. So... Let us go to chapter 46 and see what the prophet here, I'm sorry, the poet here does with story. They're in conflict. What do they need? All good stories move from conflict toward resolution. That's what the poet's going to do. He's going to tell them, you guys know where you are. And if this is a story, look up because the conflict is right about where the story gets best. It is moving towards resolution. So, Bell bows down. Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. <laughs> These things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop. They bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. What Isaiah is doing here is he's talking about some of the chief gods of um, Babylon. Bel simply means Lord, which would have been Marduk in their case. And Nebo was actually the son of Marduk, who was the god of philosophy and literature. So they're taking these chief gods, and he's kind of poking fun at them, saying, well, you know, they have to kind of be carried around on livestock. Now in verse 3, listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age, I am he, and to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear, I will carry, and I will save. This is awesome. What the poet is now doing is he's explaining to these people in conflict, you're looking for a story that's going to move your conflict to resolution. And now you have two options. The story of the Babylonians or the story of Yahweh. 
Babylonians need carrying. But Yahweh does the carrying. I'm going to touch on that a little bit more in a minute. So verse 5, to whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? Obviously nobody. Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god. Then they fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. And so here's the poet again poking fun. He's just saying these gods, like literally what they had in Babylon were priests who were designated to dressing the idol, cleaning it and washing it, and they would set food before it every single day. They had to take care of their idols. And when festivals happened, they would carry them on their animals or on their shoulders and, and bring it to the festival. And the people were like, yay, there's our God who's being carried by people. And Yahweh is now playing on this and saying, I'm the one who carries you. So the story is not just Yahweh versus Babylon. It's, do you want to be carried or do you want to do the carrying? Or let me put this one more way. It's about, do you want to have the author write the story of resolution for you? Or do you want to be the author and try to come up and out of your own mess on your own? You see, authors carry the story for the characters. The characters go with what the author does. So the Babylonians, by carrying their gods, are actually putting it upon themselves to become the authors of their own nation's destiny, of their own lives. We are the authors here. Our gods are but the characters in our story. We carry them. We make everything move in how we want it to go. But God's saying it's, a, it's converse with me. I'm the author and I'm carrying you. And see, that's what idolatry does. Idolatry takes the story and it inverts it. Idolatry says God is not the author, man is. God is the character in man's story. That God is made in the image of man. And this is what Israel needs to realize at this point. They don't need a story big enough to fit Yahweh into. They need a God big enough to carry their story for them. To take their conflict to its resolution. Let us be careful in the way that we teach the younger generation about God. So often I feel like we communicate a God who needs to be compacted into life. And there's language that makes it feel like I have to carry God on my shoulders. I have to do these things for God. If I don't do these things, and, and this is language of carry God along. Be careful because that is the idolatry that says I'm the author. God is my character. God is carrying us. Let us make sure we talk about a God who is big, 
who is declaring the end from the beginning because he knows where his story is going who is carrying his troubled people hanging on the cliff in conflict and bringing them safely to resolution. So this is the option Israel has before them. And now what's going to happen is this is, I see chapter 46 is kind of like that tension of which one are you going to do? Are you going to carry God or is God going to carry you? Are you going to be the author or is he going to be the author? So that's kind of like the tension. In chapter 45, before 46, we're going to look at what it looks like when Yahweh's the author, and then in 47, on the other end, we're going to see what it looks like when Babylon is the author. Okay, makes sense? So 46 is the middle. 45 shows us Yahweh is the author. 47 shows us Babylon as the author. So let's look at chapter 45 now. We're going to look at some of these verses and look at Yahweh as the author. And this, he makes this very clear, what he's up to. He says here in verse 5, 45.5, I am Yahweh, and there is no other. Beside me there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am Yahweh, and there is no other. Twice already. I am Yahweh, and there is no other. Let's look at verse 14. Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabians, men of stature, shall come to you and be yours. They shall follow you, and they shall come over in chains and bow to you. In other words, Israel, you're going to be the center of the world one day. The nations are going to come to you. Verse, uh, keep going. It's a long verse. They will plead with you, saying, Surely God is in you. And there is no other, no God beside him. Now verse 18. For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, he is God, who formed the earth and made it, he established it, he did not create it empty, he formed it to be inhabited. I am Yahweh, and there is no other. Four times now. Then we go down to verse 21. Declare and present your case. Let, me take, let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, Yahweh? And there is no other God besides me. A righteous God and a savior. There is none besides me. How clear is God here for them? You guys are at this option of, are you going to carry along your own story, or are you going to let me carry it along? And he declares over and over, I am Yahweh. There is no other. You're not taking my place. I'm in charge of this whole thing. And we see even there in verse 18 that he's talking about, Excuse me, verse 21. He's talking about declaring the end from the beginning. That's author language. That's somebody saying, I see the conflict. I also see the resolution. And I'm the one working it towards that. I know how this whole thing's ending because it's my doing. There is no other. I'm the one that you're to look to. And here's what is so cool. Is that throughout chapter 45, you have this language of creator 
We saw that in verse 18, that he formed the heavens and he didn't make it empty, but he made it to be inhabited. And even in verse 7, he says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. So there's this theme of that God is the creator. Verse 9 and 10 even talk about that. Like, who are you to say to me that I can't do what I want as a creator? He's a creative author. What that means is that he's that sort of author that never paints himself into a corner with his conflict. You may have read a book like that where you're reading it like, how's the author going to get them out of this one? And then like the resolution comes like, that was kind of weak. It's like they kind of like painted themselves into too, too good of a plot and you're like, eh. so Superman came out of nowhere and saved them. Superman wasn't even mentioned in the whole story. Like, what's up with that? It's like, get out of jail free card. <laughs> Save my character. Um, God is a creative author. He knows how to get the conflict to resolution. Remember that. He is Yahweh. There's no other. And he's creative in the way he's authoring. Let's now contrast this with the Babylonian story in chapter 47. So chapter 47, verse 1. This is now being spoken to Babylon. Remember, there's a people maybe ooing and aahing over the Babylonian culture, wondering, is Babylon greater than Yahweh? Well, listen to this. Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans. For you shall no more be called tender and delicate. Take the millstones and grind flour. Put off your veil, strip off your robe, uncover your legs, pass through the rivers. Your nakedness shall be uncovered and your disgrace shall be seen. I will take vengeance and I will spare no one. Our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts is his name, is the Holy One of Israel. This language in these first four verses is basically using cultural pictures to say that Babylon is going from queen of the earth to slave of the dust. That's what's being said. Get off your throne, sit in the dust. She's called virgin daughter of Babylon. What that was was a typical phrase used for a city that was about to be in trouble. Because when, when enemy armies came and surrounded a city, guess who was the most vulnerable in that city? It was not the soldiers with the weapons. It was not the king hiding in his palace. It was the virgin's. It was the ones, those were the ones that when the, when the soldiers came in, they were the vulnerable ones. They were taken for the soldier's pleasure. So this is very graphic, talking to Babylon. You virgin daughter, th there's trouble coming for you. And then, you know, it tells her to take up the millstone and grind flour. That was the work of a slave. Only slaves did that kind of work. It was considered menial and one of the lowest jobs. Uh, it says, uh, take off your clothes and pass through the river. Masters didn't pass through a river. Slaves passed through the river and carried the master over the river. So we're talking about degrading and bringing Babylon down is what is being talked about. Now look at verse 8. Now therefore hear this, you lover of pleasures, talking to Babylon again, who sit securely, who say in your heart, I am and there is no one beside me. Huh. 
I shall not sit as a widow or know the loss of children. Well, Isaiah wants to say, these two things will come to you in a moment. And one day, the loss of children and widowhood shall come upon you in full measure. In spite of your many sorceries and the great power of your enchantments. You felt secure in your wickedness. You said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray. And you said in your heart, I am and there is no one besides me. But evil shall come upon you, which you will not know how to charm away. Disaster shall fall upon you, for which you shall not be able to atone. And ruin shall come upon you suddenly, of which you know nothing. Babylon's story is imitating Yahweh's. He said there is no other. And Babylon sits there and says, in an echo, there is no one beside me. I am the one. And Isaiah is talking to this people that are doubting Yahweh. And they're looking at this Babylonian culture like, ooh, ah, oh, wow. Look at their sorcery. Look at their enchantments. Look at their knowledge and their wisdom in this temple and the city. It's massive. It's impressive. They own the whole world. And not to mention, they're the ones that invented the Zodiac. I mean, this was a society on the cutting edge of its time. And Israel's like, whoa. And so, of course, Babylon's saying, we are the ones. There's no other. We are it. But Isaiah is saying, you, there's a disaster coming that you can't charm away. Your sorceries, your magic, your knowledge, all these things that make you so wow, these things cannot keep the calamity that's about to come. So what is being said? What's being said is this. When conflict comes to Yahweh's story, he's creative. And he knows how to move that conflict to resolution because he can create things out of nothing. When conflict comes to Babylon's story, she gets writer's block. And nothing can be done. All the things she relies upon, they're outused. She's used it one too many times. It's not working for this situation. So what happens? Yahweh conflict creative resolution comes. Babylon, writer's block, no resolution. So whose story do you want to be in now, Israel? Which God do you want carrying you? Now chapter 48. Chapter 48 is the last chapter in it. It's calling an invitation in light of all this. Isaiah has given them this option. Is there's, this, there's this theme going on about who's the storyteller. Yahweh claims it's him. He's creative. He moves conflict to resolution. Yahweh says, but no, we're the ones too. But when conflict comes, they're not creative enough. And they get writer's block and nothing ever happens. And they are going to be taken into captivity. So that's the story option. And now in verse 40, chapter 48, the invitation to leave the Babylonian side and come back to Yahweh, to stop the doubting and to fully embrace him as he is, as the good storyteller, the good author who knows the end from the beginning, and he's moving Israel somewhere. So here's the invitation. It begins with him um, telling Israel that they need to wake up. But the invitation begins here in verse 12. Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I called. I am he. I am the first. I am the last. 
the author is the first and the last of the story, right? Listen to me, invitation. My hand laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand forth together. So, verse 14, assemble all of you and listen. Another invitation, come near. Who among them has declared these things? The Lord loves him. Now, him is a guy named Cyrus. We'll talk about him in just a minute. The Lord loves Cyrus. He shall perform God's purpose on Babylon, and his arm shall be against the Chaldeans. So this disaster is coming. It's going to happen through a guy named Cyrus. Verse 15. I, even I, have spoken and called him. I have brought him, and he will prosper in his way. Why? Because I'm the author. I can create a character. Here's the character. I'm going to tell him what to do, and he's going to do it. Verse 16, another invitation. Draw near to me. Hear this. From the beginning, I have not spoken in secret. From the time it came to be, I have been there. And now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord your God who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your offspring would have been like the sand and your descendants like its grains. Their name would never be cut off or destroyed from before me. But as it is, the author is bringing the conflict to resolution. So here is the invite. In its finality, verse 20, go out from Babylon, flee from Chaldea, declare this with a shout of joy, proclaim it, and send it out to the end of the earth. Say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. They did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made water flow for them from the rock. He split the rock and the water gushed out. He's saying, he's saying, Babylon, this place of exile, this place of doubt, this place of uncertainty, this place of conflict where you're hanging on the cliff and you need resolution and you don't even know what's going on anymore in your life, that darkness. I've shown you what I'm up to. I've shown you that I can create resolution here in your conflict. So go out of Babylon. But, but there's a lot of wilderness between Babylon and Jerusalem. It's scary. It's But do you remember the first exodus? They went from Egypt to to the promised land Canaan. There's lots of wilderness. But God made water flow out of the rock. And Isaiah reminds them of that says, this is a second exodus. God is taking over once again. He allowed the conflict for reasons, but now he's bringing you resolution. And he will take care of you along the way. He's not setting you up to die. His story ends with your prophet. So, as a good story moves conflict toward resolution, what we're seeing here is that God's story is a good story because it's moving from conflict to resolution in these names. It's moving from Babylon to Jerusalem, to restoration. From the place of who is God, you don't even know anymore, to the place of this is where our temple is. We're going to rebuild it. God's story is a good story because it does what all stories should do. Moves you through conflict to resolution. God is telling them that my story is going somewhere. 
as 46 verse 8 says. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is... I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, from the ancient times, things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all my purpose. My story shall be written. Calling a bird of prey from the east, this is Cyrus, the man of my counsel from a far country. I've spoken. I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart. You who are far from righteousness, I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off and my salvation will not delay I put my salvation in Zion, where Jerusalem is, for Israel my glory. See, it's going somewhere. I know the end, and I'm taking you from Babylon back to Jerusalem. The story is progressing, and, and there's nothing worse than feeling like life isn't progressing. The constant repetitive cycle of, here we go again. But Yahweh takes us somewhere. It moves along. And he's encouraging them, come, come, come. Let me be your author. Trust me again because my story takes you places. I listened to Beethoven's first symphony last night. I was studying for this. My head was hurting. I was frustrated. So I needed a break. (laughs) So I sat outside and I listened to Beethoven's first. Now, you're thinking, what in your right mind would make you sit down and listen to a 40-minute symphony, 40 minutes straight? You may not be crazy about classical music, but I would never do that. I would never do that if I didn't know that Beethoven, the composer, was taking the symphony somewhere. I can sit down and listen because I know it's taking me somewhere. If it was just a bunch of random, there's a note, there's a note, and it's not really formed, it's not going anywhere, that would be murder for 40 minutes. And I would never, ever even think of engaging in that. It's the same with all music. We listen to music not because it's just random notes and things doing whatever. We know as we enter into a song that it's taking us somewhere. We know that as we open a book, we're not going to find random things, and this character is never going to overcome his problem, and there's nothing that's ever going to happen. It's just going to be a record, like a journal. This is what I did today. This is what I did today. We know that story takes us somewhere, so we open the book. And Yahweh's letting them know, I'm taking you to Jerusalem so you can receive my invitation. Now to finish, for another five minutes here. Um, Let us not miss God's resolution in our lives because we think we know how the story ends. Don't, Don't pick up the pen for a minute. It's his pen and leave it there. Because God turns conflict into resolution in some of the most unexpected ways. In chapter 45, verse 1, we are introduced to this guy named Cyrus. And God is saying, this Cyrus character is whom I am going to use. He's going to defeat tons of nations. He's going to defeat the Babylonians. That's why the fall in chapter 47. Cyrus is going to do this. He's a Persian ruler who defeats the Babylonians. And, and Isaiah is saying this before Cyrus does this. 
this is like, this is always saying, I am the author. I'm saying this before it happens, and it happens, you know? Cyrus. But, but look at verse 1 and tell me what it says about Cyrus. There it is. Thus says the Lord to his, who? Anointed to Cyrus. The Hebrew word for anointed is Mashiach, which we transliterate as Messiah. Now, who is the Messiah? We instantly think of Jesus. But actually, back up, the Jews talked about Messiah way, way, way before Jesus. Messiah was a word used for the high priest. Messiah was a word used for the king of Israel. Messiah simply means God's appointed and anointed ruler. Now, they were without their Messiah. The king was no longer on the throne. The Davidic king whole thing is not going on anymore. And they're looking for a Messiah, no doubt. But where are they looking? Who are you expecting a Messiah to come from? We're expecting another Davidic king to rise up, and he's going to lead us into victory. But God says, don't anticipate my story. I am raising a new Messiah that you would never even look for. Unexpected, shocking, surprising. He's a Gentile from the Persians. And if we think for a minute that we can just conclude God's story for him, you're going to miss the Messiah. And many Jews did miss the Messiah who was leading them to the resolution of the whole story. Don't create the Messiah. Let God create him. Well, Jacob was down on the ground. He could feel the hot breath upon his neck. (laughs) He could hear (laughs) the growling. There was the red, blood-angry eyes. There was the white, glistening fangs. And the mama grizzly stood up to come down upon him for one last time and finish him off. And Jacob rolled over to see his final fate. And suddenly, echoing through the woods, was a shot. And the grizzly fell over beside Jacob dead. Jacob was bewildered. Who, who saved me? And a long trudging through the woods, tracking game with that insolent smirk on his face is his neighbor. And he extends his hand to help Jacob up. And he says, my name is Cyrus. Nice to meet you. And walks off. And Jacob leaves the woods, goes back home with Billy, who's been... He's okay. (laughs) And rather than muttering cursings against his neighbor, he's leaving the woods praising what God had done for him through his neighbor. The unexpected deliverer. So I want to finish with this this question. Have you found, in the middle of your conflict, in the middle of your cliffhanger, have you found resolution in God as the author? God, we pray that you would do so. Take the pen of our lives 
and bring resolution to our conflict. We're okay if you surprise us. In your son's name, amen. Why don't we all stand? Before creation, eternity in your hand, you spoke the earth into motion, my soul now before you stood before you stood before my face.
like to go into your conflict resolution meeting, your mandatory uh, reconciliation meeting with this person. Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, my called, I am the first and I am the last. Indeed, my hand has laid the foundation on the earth and my right hand has stretched out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand together. Wow, let's go to battle. Let's do it, okay? Interesting how the author has laid out this great and mighty, powerful God for us. And I can't tell you how important it is for you to read your one chapter a day, your four chapters a week, over and over again to try to get the feel for where you're coming to. You see, the author's going to change the tone just a little. Let me read to you from next week's chapters. And he said to me, you are my servant. He said in verse 5 of chapter 49, And now the Lord says, Who formed me from the womb to be his servant. The author's having fun with us, isn't he? As we look into his word, the whole purpose is to know that he has written this story because he knows the beginning from the end. He is the first and the last. Take the message tonight with you and go out and live life victoriously knowing that who you serve it's the God who created everything, and the God who promised you that he's coming back for us. Amen? Amen. The Lord bless thee, Lord bless thee. And, keep thee. and keep thee. The Lord make his face to shine upon thee, and be gracious unto thee. And be gracious unto thee, the Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. Amen. The pastors and elders will be up front or in the back there to pray with you or to meet with you if you have any questions. Satisfied and in need of none, a blessed harmony of three and
all-sufficient, all-powerful, with an all-consuming love unimaginable, still you remain, oh Lord, because you haven't changed, oh.